You're listening to The Radical Flu, a radio play by Rose Hammer, here on Radio Roque, FM 99.3. This is the end of the radical flu here on Radio Rockel. Rose Hammer has been gliding across times, epics, historical events, revolutionary congresses, changes of paradigm, epidemics, pandemics, cemeteries, streets, and northern plains. This Aleph where everything suddenly coincides, where we have tried to set some records straight and repair the irreparable, has come to an end. But we want to say goodbye in beauty, and in this epilogue we will encounter a familiar voice speaking from a dark place just before sunrise. This epilogue opens with a song, Al Alba, or At Sunrise. Al Alba is a song written in 1975 by Spanish singer-songwriter Luis Eduardo Aute. It quickly became a protest anthem for all those seeking political change at the end of Franco's 40 years long dictatorship. The song appeared some time after the last political executions of the regime, five young political prisoners in their 20s shut dead in the early hours of September 29, 1975. The composer wrote the song as a lover's lament for the singer Rosa Leon, who, upon listening to it, commented, This is not a love song. These are the words of someone who knows she will die in the morning. Eduardo responded that, although he had been commissioned to write a love song, he could not stop thinking of the young people who just lost their lives for their armed opposition to the dictatorship. A lover's lament. A last poem before death at sunrise. Te dijera amor mío que temo a la madrugada no sé qué estrellas son estas 
que hieren como amenazas, ni sé que sangra la luna al filo de su guadaña. Presiento que tras la noche vendrá la noche más larga. Quiero que no me abandones, amor mío al alba, al alba, al alba, al alba, al alba. Los hijos que no tuvimos se esconden en las cloacas, comen las últimas flores, parece que adivinarán que el día que se avecina viene con hambre atrasada. Presiente que tras la noche vendrá la noche más larga quiero que no me abandones amor mío al alba al alba al alba al alba, al alba. Miles de buitres callados van extendiendo sus alas. No te destroza, amor mío. Esta silenciosa danza, maldito baile de muertos, pólvora de la mañana. Presiento que tras la noche vendrá la noche más larga. Quiero que no me abandones, amor mío al alba, al alba, al alba, al alba, al alba.
if I would tell you, my love, that, that I am afraid, afraid of, sunrise. of sunrise. I do not know which stars are those, hurting me like threats. The moon is bleeding out at the edge of the scythe, I feel. But after the night, there will come a longer night. Please, Please do, do not, not leave, leave me, me my, my love. love. At sunrise. Who's speaking? You've been hearing my voice through the eight episodes of The Radical Flu. But who's speaking? In Camus' The Plague, the narrator is the main character, and at the end of the novel we see the narrator and the protagonist, Dr. Rieu, become one character. In The Radical Flu, the narrator is a voice, which only becomes an actor at the end of the play. We are now at the end of the play. Am I the protagonist? Am I Martin Tranmer, the fiery, blazing, intense socialist, defining roses of red as dynamite for the workers in Norway? He could speak on demand for thousands, a reckless giant with sparkling blue eyes and stray hair, When he opened his mouth, it was like the gates of hell opened, and out of it exploded a rain of lava that threatened to burn down the entire capitalist system. Am I Edvard Munch? Sweet, neurotic Edvard. My friend. A famous and notoriously reclusive painter as he was introduced in Ibsen, Ibsen, Ibsen. The handsome, noble Edward, paralyzed between fear and ambition, indeed a devout admirer of Ibsen, but also forever ready to take Ibsen's place in the Olympus of the greatest Norwegian ever. And who could blame him? Norwayers make good, good business out of him. You can have your Munk t-shirt, your Munk tote bag. A first league artist, his peers being now Manet, Matisse, Van Gogh, Edward, you should be happy. Painting was the only thing that mattered to you, and you are where you wanted to be. But happiness was not a talent that you possessed. Am I Gustav Vigeland? No, I am certainly not Gustav, the godfather of my first child, Senon. Am I Johann Scharfenberg? Racist, medical doctor, psychiatrist, nationalist, lover of all practices ancient Greek except drinking, bad poet, 49 years old, as he was introduced to us in Bro Bro Brille. I am certainly not, but I am sure Scharfenberg had a thing or two to say about me. 
I would have been a delightful study object for him, no doubt, belonging to the category of women, those disgusting bodies. A woman. Am I any of the radical flu's very important women? Ingeborg Kerbyr, Osta Hansten, Johanna Dybvad, Regina Stang, Ragnar Nilsson. No, I am not any of them, even if I belong to the same generation as most of them, and we could have appeared together in Bro Bro Brillo or No Steam Ahead. But I wasn't there in 1918. I am not Elsa Laula Renberg. I am not Johan Turi. I am not Daniel Mortensen in Reaching Winter Grounds. Am I Gloria? A woman lies buried under me. I hear her soft whisper, the rasp of her parchment wings, fighting the folds of my shroud. A woman lies buried under me. I emerge covered with mud. Twigs fall from my eyes. I rise, smell every flower, touch the four corners and the burning trees. In my own hands, my life. No, I am not Gloria, but I could be, because like Gloria, I am dead. I am a woman, and I am dead. Edgar Allan Poe said, The death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world. I would have done anything for poetic effect, but I did not want to die. As a female poet, as a new woman, as a free woman, as a woman in love, as a woman beloved, death was always at the corner of my eye. Still, I did not want to die. I was, I was a future's premature child, born too early, gone too soon. I was the lady for Munch, and then for all my admirers, his friends, I was the lady too, my admirers, my killers. I was Aspasia, the whore for Strindberg, a sore loser who never forgave me for laughing at his erotic advances and choosing another man. Strindberg, the great poet and the small man who thought a free woman meant his enslavement. I was Ducha, soul in Polish, for my husband, who was my killer, too. I was God, holy, goodness itself for my last lover, who was my killer, too. I was the mysterious Fru Peer, for whom Wiegeland and Munch fought in Berlin. 
I was the woman Strindberg wanted to have jailed for prostitution, one dark evening when she was roaming the streets. I was Norwegian, very slender, with the curves of a Madonna of Giacento, with a laughter that drove men mad. Her name was Duha, and she drank absinthe by the litre without getting drunk. Only after death, and even much, much later, they let me be an author and an intellectual in my own right. In life, I could only be defined by the effect I had on men. Muse, when they considered I was good for their intellectual production, or femme fatale, when I was held responsible for their lack of control and dried-up inspiration. They loved me, and they killed me. My Polish husband had already two children with a woman who was pregnant of the third when he wrote to me. A nature such as mine can only consist in you, for you are my absolute, highest, most intimate ideal. I shall write the most wonderful things. I shall extend into heaven. I shall do all, all, all. But I need to feel that you love me. She'd been queen of the realm of love, for no man had ever loved a woman more highly than he, her. And I loved him. When Marta Ferdir, mother of five of his children, committed suicide after giving birth to the fifth, I brought him chocolate and cigarettes to prison. I had two children with him, but that was not my only contribution to his glory. I translated his work into Norwegian, supported him economically, and became queen of the king of the Bohem, Stachu Stanislav Pshibisevsky. By 1899, he was tired of me and started new affairs with new women and the subsequent spread of his genetic material. She felt calm, relieved, almost happy. She stretched her arms out and breathed deeply, as if freed from an embarrassing thought. He had put up an ivy wall for her life to force her to only see him, him, him. She now wanted to tear it down and open it to all winds. I was trying to start life again by the time I met my final executor, Vladislav Emmerich. Like a lamb being taken to the sacrificial slaughter, my husband arranged for me and my young son to travel with Emmerich to Tbilisi in Georgia. In the early hours of June 5th, 1901, Emmerich shot me in the head and then shot himself. My son was there, still too young to read the words my killer had prepared for him. My beloved Zenon, I am taking your mother from you. You will hear the strangest things about her, but literature, both what has been written and what will surely be written, will not give you the source of truth. For she was not of this world. That she was the only one of the absolute Almighty's incarnations, that she was God, you will hear elsewhere. I wish only to say, to express myself in an earthly way, that she was holy. 
She was goodness itself. She had a royal goodness which had grown from contempt. You alone were everything for her. She believed that her goal, her reason for being sent here, was to give birth to you. I am taking her from you. I am doing you a terrible, boundless wrong. Maybe your life will be ruined by it. I cannot do anything else. I cannot do anything else out of concern for her. In eternity, when we meet. Emmerich the killer had words for my husband as well. Stach, I'm killing her for her own good. She wanted to write to you that she knew I was going to kill her. She considered it necessary. She loved only you all her life. And now she heard only him. She saw only him. Him everywhere. She felt his hand clasp hers. She heard his voice whisper again and again. How he loved her, that she was everything to him, that no death, no grave could prevent him from following her always, in time and eternity. I did not want to die. I wanted to live for my children and for my work. But muse or femme fatale, the truth is that I meant very little for those men supposedly tormented by my freedom. My husband did not attend my funeral, nor took care of my son. In his private correspondence with his new mistress, he seemed satisfied about my being no more and complained about the high cost of a funeral in Georgia. I was buried namelessly because he would not pay. It was a woman, Maya Fucht, who arranged for having my grave marked with my name. Not surprisingly, I was blamed for my death. My life was irregular, bohemian, indecent. I was the shame of my family. I was lascivious, sexually insatiable, adulterous. My executor had no other choice but to kill me. I troubled him. My work was mediocre, just a pale reflection of the geniuses I was lucky enough to spend time with. Only Munk dared to play a different note in the general public shaming. In an interview for the newspaper Christiane Adaksavis, he accorded me the status of intellectual and cultivated woman. Serious about my writing. He was backed up in this evaluation by an unexpected party. Women's voting rights champion, Gina Krog. A bronze bust of Krog is located at her grave at Wolfhelsers Gravlund in Oslo. Not far from the Karara monolith we are talking, in Ibsen, Ibsen, Ibsen. My life was cut short and I could not be in Christiania in 1918. I could not be a character in The Radical Flu, but I can be its narrator. A voice. My voice. I am Dagny Yule.
This is the end of the radical flu. Support women. Believe women. Stop killing women. Stop violence against women. She did not die. She was assassinated. If they touch one of us, we shall all respond. Not one less. It's going to fall. It's going to fall. Heteropatriarchy is going to fall. It is not going to fall. We are going to push it over. There is no revolution without sexual revolution. Justice, justice, justice.
Ooh.